Hey, welcome to the 78th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to comics to novels to horror to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, I'm going back, 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 back in time. In 1993, during my junior year at the University of Delaware, I applied to about 150 newspapers and magazines for a summer internship. Very few places replied, and if they did, it was almost always a curt rejection. But one day, I received a three-page typed letter from Steve Buckley, one of the great sports writers of my generation and, back then, a writer for Boston Magazine. Steve took the time to break down all of my clips, and he offered tons of encouragement. But he also included with the words a piece he had recently written headlined of Monuments and Men. And holy shit, for my money, it's the best magazine article ever written. It's about a 20-year-old soldier named Stanley Teven who died during World War II. And everything about the piece is absolutely perfect. So I decided, hey, why not bring Steve here to break down an all-time perfect story? Also, just a note, I'm going to post the article on my site, jeffperlman.com, and tweet it out. Anyhow, Steve now writes for The Athletic, and he's just one of the absolute kings of the profession. So sit back, relax, and listen along to two writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Steve, first of all, thank you for doing this. And I want to say, and I'm not just saying this, I've done more than 70 episodes of this podcast. And uh, I just said to my wife five minutes ago, I said, I'm, I'm as excited, I'm more excited to do this one. <laughs> And I want to tell you why, before you, you know, before you get into anything, I have in front of me a letter on Boston Magazine stationery, March 16th, 1993. And it was, uh, it was sent to my dorm room at the University of Delaware in the Christiana Towers. You started by saying, I apologize for taking so long to get back to you. I had intended to sit down one morning and jot down some notes and observations regarding your clips, but I was sideswiped by a 5,000 word piece on the Harvard Business School. Anyway, I was in my office at 7.30 this morning, and I've hunkered down in my office to go over your clips, which I should say right off are very good. I reckon you have something lined up for the summer or will still. The following observations can help so much the better. I probably sent, I don't know, 12, 15 clips, and you did. You broke down every single clip I sent in. And then at the end you wrote, I got to run the editor screaming for me, and I think that's a whip in his hands. Jeff, I think you know you're pretty good, and if you need to have somebody else tell you, that I'm telling you. I suspect you're going to be a player in this game. Let me know what your plans are for the summer. When Steve Buckley from Boston Magazine wrote to me this letter <laughs> and said, I suspect you're going to be a player in this game, I cannot tell you how much that meant to me. I really mean that. And, and I have thought about, I have this letter saved in my, in a folder in my, in my office. And I have thought about that letter so many times through the years. I think about it when younger writers now write me asking for advice. Um, I've used that phrase. I think you're going to be a player in this game, which it wasn't part of my vernacular before. I mean, it's a long intro of, of, it's a 25 year old thank you from a geeky University of Delaware guy who just wanted to be a writer. That was one of the most important, impactful letters I've ever received in my life. So it's a thrill to have you here today. Long, long way of saying. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, that's, that's very kind of you. And the only thing I remember about my end of the conversation and, and to fill your listeners in, I, I 
wasn't even aware of this until you reached out to me many years later. The only thing I do remember is is that Mike Roberts, who was the editor of Boston Magazine, and and to put it in the context, I was this was after I was a hotshot columnist for the National Sports Daily, which had gone out of business in '91. I there, there weren't many jobs out there, so I took this job as senior editor at Boston Magazine. And and I do remember that Mike Roberts, who was the big guy, had had thrown all this stuff at me. Hey, go through this stuff, and if you see anything, and and I think what I was doing was just sort of like whiling away the hours in my little cubicle. And it, it it's apparent, given both by the letter that you're reading and where your career has taken you, it's what's illustrated to all these great books. Uh, that your stuff jumped out at me. And there was probably stuff there that I found appallingly bad too. And I, I don't <laughs> think I would have, I don't think I'd have, uh, written those people. So you, you likely caught me in a moment when I was, uh, I do know there was a really good coffee shop around the corner. Uh, it's still there near Northeastern University, Cafe Espresso Royale. And they had really good coffee and bagels. So I probably grabbed the coffee and a bagel. And in, in the midst of writing that, I was basically killing time and avoiding actual work. It's funny how you never know what's going to make an impact on people, you know? Oh, you yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it, there's, I could give you all kinds of examples in my own career of, uh, of, uh, I mean, I met Tracy Ringlesby of all people, mm-hmm. uh, former Dallas Morning News, Denver. Uh, he, he's been around in all the different papers, but I met him behind the batting cage. Uh, at Shea Stadium during the World Series in 86, and he saw my press pass, and it said Steve Buckley, Portland Press Herald, which is where I was working at the time. And he said, aren't you the guy that writes for Baseball America? Because I was doing columns for Baseball America. And he sa- I, I said, yeah. He said, oh, I really like your stuff. And uh, we began gabbing for a few minutes, and he said, well, wh- what is your goal? What do you want to do? Well, I, I'm in Portland now. I want to be a big league traveling beat writer. And two or three months later, I get a call from the Tacoma News Tribune. Do you want to be our Seattle Mariners beat writer? And I said, sure. How'd you get my name? It's all Tracy Wrinklesby is an old friend of mine. So, so there, there are a lot of little weird th- things like that. And I'm not saying that I ended up out in Seattle because uh, of Tracy Wrinklesby solely. Obviously, the clips had to kind of save the day, but right. there was an entree provided by somebody and those things uh, do become important. Yeah. So, so included in the letter you wrote me were a couple of articles. You sent me a couple of, a couple of your own clips. And one was a story from Boston Magazine. It was uh, December 1991. And it was called Of Monuments and Men. The subhead was Pearl Harbor plunged us into a war that affected the lives of everyone. This is a tale of one life and another time and a death in a different place. I'm sure you won't agree with me on this. I maintain this is the best article <laughs> ever written on the planet. It is my all-time favorite story. I've shown it to more students over the years, colleagues over the years. I consider it a master class in writing it. And in fact, people who are listening, if you actually go to my website, jeffperlman.com, and uh, you you look up my all-time favorite story, you will actually find a link to this story. That's how how much I love this story. And I want to talk about, but I just want to read the lead at first real quick, which is, um, I'm sitting here at my desk wondering if I'm going crazy or to be less extreme perhaps taking the Stanley Teven business entirely too seriously. You be the judge. To my left, just a few feet from my word processor, sits a picture of a man who has been dead for close to 47 years. 
I've resorted to placing Stanley's picture right there, where I can keep an eye on him and he on me as I string words together in an attempt to introduce this visitor from yesterday. He is a man I never met, yet he is a man I have come to know well in recent months, so well that, as I sit here late at night writing this piece about Stanley, I half expect him to walk into the room and ask me, Have you put it all together? Do you know all the things about me you wanted to know? I see him there, a slight fellow, his oversized military overcoat hanging off of him, reminding me that he has been keeping track of things, knows that I've talked with Doris Tremblay, uh, Sigadelli, and Ruth Tremblay, Broussard, and John Mulvihill. He says he's surprised I located Jerry Feldman after all these years. Stanley smiles and lights a cigarette. I glance at his picture again, and as I look up, he's gone. All right. I love this story. <laughs> I mean, you know this. I love, yes. love everything I about this story. I do too. You do. So, so I'm happy about that. Um, what is the origin? How did this happen? So it, it, to, to take it way back, that monument is in a traffic circle at Fresh Pond in Cambridge, Mass, where I grew up. And I remember riding my bike out by that area one night and, and I used to ride my bike for miles and I had driven around that traffic circle a million times and used to always wonder who that person was for whatever reason. I always noticed those monuments. This one particularly jumped out at me for some reason. So I, I went across the, the, the road out to the monument and I saw the name. Now you got to understand this is the late sixties and I'm 14 or so years old, early seventies. Uh, the country's in turmoil, Vietnam, the SDS is putting up crosses at Cambridge Common. And, and it, it, I remember watching the old World War II movies on TV when Johnny comes marching home again. And we always treated our military heroes as heroes. And, and here these dudes are coming back from Vietnam and they're getting stuff thrown at them. And, and the, the again, you got the SDS rioting in Harvard Square. And as a, as a, preteen, barely out of childhood kid, I couldn't really get my hands around the fact that we built this monument for this kid who who died in World War II, Stan Teven, and yet the soldiers coming back from Vietnam are getting spit on. Now, I, I lack the intellectual capacity to understand that then. I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the TV thing stayed with me. And uh, I remember driving my mother to work when I was in college, and I said to her, I've always wondered who that guy is. That thing is named after it. My mother said to me, says, well, you want to be a writer. Maybe you'll write about it someday. And as it happened in 1991, when the National Sports Day went out of business, I had a contract through the end of the year. So I had a regular salary coming in. And I began hurtling myself into the whole magazine bit and pitched that idea to Mike Roberts at Boston Magazine. Uh, and he loved it. And he said, here, why don't you go write a piece on it? And, uh, and because I didn't have to worry about money with the salary from the national coming in and I didn't have a lot of expenses anyway, I was at a, I was able to make this the only thing I did. Now, the reason the lead came out the way it did was because I had nothing else going on. So when I tracked down Stan's sister and then a, a guy that was on the plane with him and then, people that knew him growing up. And then all of a sudden I meet with Stan's sister and I get letters and photos. Like when I mentioned Stan in his oversized top coat and smoking a cigarette, uh, that's because I saw pictures of him with that coat on. And I saw a picture of him smoking a cigarette. So, so 
I'm, I'm forming this vision in my head of who he is and what he is, or who he was and what he was, based on letters and conversations and phone calls and, and all of this stuff, so that when I sit down to write the story, it, it overwhelmed me. And that's why I, I wrote it in the first person, which at, at, when I told the editor, hey, I'm kind of going first person on this. And he said, no, 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 you can't do that. Uh, you're writing about a kid that died in 1945. And this is 1991, and you you can't do this. And when I sent it in, he barely changed the comma, so I convinced him of the way I wanted to go with it. I'm a huge fan of, you know, like you come up through college, and you're told everything you can't do in a story, right? You can't be yeah. first person, you can't start a sentence with but, you need a nut graph, blah, 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 blah. And I feel like at some point you get the confidence, if you do this enough, um, to ignore all of that and just do whatever works for you. Well, I had a teacher in high school, Mrs. Schultz, who was a real stickler for, for detail. And Cambridge High and Latin School had what they called common errors. It was a, a test you had to take, and you had to keep testing it, taking it until you passed. And it was all the rules of grammar and syntax and so forth. And you had to pass that test before you could go on to be a sophomore. And then there was another common errors test as a sophomore. It was very, very old school. But one thing Mrs. Schultz did say was, if you become a writer, learn all the rules and then learn how to break them. And there's effective ways to break rules. Like you said about starting a sentence with but, I remember being yelled at, no, you can never, ever, ever start a sentence with the word but. But then you get your sea legs and, you know, Joe walked into the room, he sat down, he turned the TV on and blah, 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 blah. And then the next graph, but, and then you, put something in there for dramatic effect. And, and you can certainly do that, but you couldn't do it as a freshman in high school. I can tell you that from experience. I feel like I've mangled every rule there is to writing. I oh, feel yeah. like I have long dashes out the gazoo, semicolons when it should be a comma, one sentence paragraphs, on and on and on. I just, after a while, it's just almost like you just do it. It feels right. And hopefully it's okay. That's yeah, it. I'm the king of the colon. I, uh, I, I buy those in the, you know, in the big grab bag at Walmart. I use a lot of colons. Yeah. Um, I took up the, I, I go to the immediately to the long dash bin. That's where I go <laughs> in IO7. Um, wait. So, so the story is basically about this guy, Stanley Teven, who, who died in World War II flying a plane over Yugoslavia. Um, you wanted to find out everything there was to find about him and find out who he was. Um, it's a completely random story. I mean, like you said, it's, it's just because you always wondered about this guy because there's a Stanley Teven traffic circle. Um, I might be testing your memory here, but how do you actually go about a finding people and b convincing them to talk on such a sort of random inquisition? It, it, it's two great questions, and keeping in mind the story was written pre-internet, so uh, Google would have been a much greater yeah. tool uh, for me to do this. But uh, the old-fashioned way of doing it back then, and it, it's the most common sense thing you could possibly do. You pick up a local phone book and you look under the name Teven and you begin calling up those people named Teven who live in that area because the common sense is they would have put up the monument to Stan Teven. Chances are 100% that he lived in that area. He didn't like live in Rhode Island. He was probably a Cambridge kid. I didn't find any Tevens in Cambridge, but I did find one in Arlington, which was the next town over. And I got a guy on the phone and 
told him, I'm doing this story on Stan Steve and your name is Steven. Might he be related to you? And, and he said, well, uh, he's some kind of a cousin, but I, I do know if you talk to my mother's sister, my mother's dad or some talk to his sister, she was a first cousin of Stan Steven and give, give her a call. So he gave me the number and it was a Mrs. McCaffrey and two minutes into the conversation come to find out that her son, uh, Rich McCaffrey was in my graduating class in high school. So we did that. We did that for 10 minutes and just that big coincidence. And then she's talking and then out of nowhere, she says, well, you've talked to Stan's sister, right? And I said, no, I didn't know he even had, that's what I'm doing here. Oh, she said, oh, no, 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 no. Before you talk to me, you need to talk to Stan's sister. She lives in New Hampshire. So she gave me, uh, Barbara Blair was her name, gave me Barbara's number. And, uh, and I called her up and I told my story and there was a long pause. And she said something to the effect, well, what is it you want from me? And I said, well, really, I'd like you to tell me everything there is to know about Stan. I want to write a piece in Boston Magazine on it. And she said, why? And then she, po- I gave her the same tour that I gave you about being a kid. I think I may have left out Vietnam and all that. I think mm-hmm. I, I simplified it. And she, we talked for like 20 minutes and she says, well, give me the day to think it over or something like that. A week later, she and her husband came down from New Hampshire, met me. We had lunch at the SNS, which was a deli in Inman Square in Cambridge. And in addition to telling me a boatload of anecdotes, she brought a box marked Stan. And in that box were photos and, and, uh, commendations from being in the United States Army Air Force and, and all kinds of letters and stuff pertaining to the plane going down and his death. So, uh, the Rosetta Stone, which I think I referred to it as that was a list of the entire crew from that B 24 Liberator that went down. And I was able to find, uh, John Mulvihill. Who was the, um, uh, what was he? The, I think he was the bombardier. No, was he the bombardier? I forget. I don't have it in front of me. But mm-hmm. anyway, I reached John Mulvihill and who was one of the crewmates and eventually J- Jerome Feldman, who was the other crew member who lived and they filled in all kinds of details. And, uh, I eventually met them both and both subsequently have died. And so now I've got two guys around the plane. I've got Stan's sister. I've got Stan's three, four, five buddies from St. John's High School in Cambridge. I've got Doris Tremblay, who uh, sort of dated him uh, in high school. Um, Ruth Ruth Sigadelli, who dated him. Uh, I guess I guess, uh, I guess Stan was a player, and uh, so y- you you end up with all these anecdotes, photos, letters, uh, everything, and then. He just like, where do I go with this? I've, I've, I've got Stan Steven on the brain right now. And, uh, and it was, uh, the, the worst part of it was writing it because I wanted to keep doing the research. It was so much fun collecting all that stuff. And, um, I'm sure this has happened to you. When I finally wrote the piece and I was happy with it and sent it in, saw it in the magazine, there was a kind of sadness that, that, that chapter was over. Yeah. I totally get that. I actually, there are a couple of things about this story in particular. Um, word choices and things that just do it for me. Like, um, you wrote, you have a paragraph here and you write, uh, at every turn I was bumping into strangers from yesterday, strangers whose monuments keep nudging me 
asking me never to forget. I can't explain why I always stop and take notice when I see the sign at the Liberato de Stefano Square in the North End, or Lieutenant Michael P. Quinn Square in Charleston, or Richard J. Trump Memorial Park in Somerville. But I do. And this is what you wrote. These were people once. They had lives. They had stories to tell. But then they died, and then came the monuments and the playgrounds and the newly named street corners, all asking us never to forget. And then, well, we forgot. I have stolen that line in one form or another (laughs) so many times because I think it's so every stadium, every street, every bridge, they literally are named so people remember something and then we don't remember them at all. Yeah. And and, uh, what what I did for the Herald for years when I worked for the Boston Herald, every Memorial Day, I I would revisit this theme and randomly choose one of these street corners or Hero Squares is actually the official name they call them now, and, and investigate and recreate that person's life. And I think the line I use now is, we build these monuments so we won't forget, but then as old people move into new neighborhoods, we do forget, and right. uh, which, which is what happens. And uh, the most recently recent one I did, uh, the last one I did for the Herald before I quit to go to the Athletic, I was driving around East Boston near the airport, Logan Airport, and I found a little tiny triangle of a square with a sign in it. And I forgive me, I can't remember the soldier's name. He died in World War One. And as I'm looking at it and writing down the information, this guy came, hopped over the fence and began watering the flowers. And it turned out that two guys who live across the street, they're married. They run a little pizza place in East Boston. This was literally right in front of their house. And they took it upon themselves to care for it. And that's what I ended up writing about. These two guys who, who were born in the, like the 70s, taking right. care of a World War I hero square. That's really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Why do you think it matters? I'm actually being serious. Like, uh, Stanley Teven is dead. He's not, he never read your article. He doesn't exist anymore. He's never going to exist again. He won't know the story existed. You know, like, on and on and on. Most people still don't they'll drive by the Stanley Teven traffic circle and not really give a shit. So why do you think, since it sets a theme of your work, why does it matter to remember people who are no longer around if they're not around to enjoy the remembrances? Wow, that's the, the, there's all kinds of answers to that. I, I mean, I can give you the Bob Hope special about, you know, they were <laughs> our boys, our fighting boys. And I, I think that is part of it. I mean, World War II... That was that was quite a deal. We're talking Hitler running through Europe, and and we'd have lived in a much different society today. Uh, although we could argue where it's going now, but I yeah. I don't want to get into that here. But um, but it really was important that I mean it really was a a war of good guys versus bad guys, and we were the good guys, and we certainly had problems at home. And if you want to get into the real deep shit of well, you know we're we're trying to get the guys who are responsible for the Holocaust while we are lynching blacks in the South. I mean, that, that's a whole different story we don't have time to get into. But the fact of the matter is we did need to win that war. And, and guys like Stan Teven helped us win the war. Now, I've also done stories on kids that went over to Vietnam and died. And uh, n- now I do have the intellectual capacity to understand that Vietnam was an illegal, immoral war and, and that we paid a terrible price for it deep in our hearts collectively. But the kids that went there, and this is what I found out from doing the pieces over the years on those guys, they were 19 years old. They were building model airplanes and, and dating girls and, and 
and buying Beatles albums and doing all that. They were just kids. They didn't know what they were getting into, and they they thought they were serving their country. They went over there and they got blown up, and they get sent home. And we put up a square to them. So I I, I see them as just as important to the whole business as the guys in Vietnam in, in World War Two. And it, it is important that we remember the sacrifices. I know that sounds a little hackneyed uh, these days, but it, it it's always. It, and then there's also the if we don't. We learn from history. We're doing to repeat it. There's, there's also that. All of these are cliches. I recognize that. Uh, but we do need to remember that. We do need to learn from that. And you may hear a million times these sacrifices and all, well, they were sacrifices. Now, if I can just go off on a slight tangent, something that's got me in a little bit of trouble is, is that, that NFL players taking a knee during NFL games. I'm not quite sure how that turned into a slap in the face to our fighting boys. I haven't quite got my hands around that yet. The, the, the whole Trump crowd, they, they have made, anytime you take a knee during the national anthem, you're anti-military, you're, you're, you hate our country and so forth. No, no, I love my country. And, and when people have gone after me, cause I've defended the football players, I've heard their stories and I, I've, 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 I've looked into their eyes when I've been to Patriots practice and, I look at this as they aren't slapping the military in the face. And when someone who tells me that I have, I had a guy in the radio say, oh, well, you know, what have you ever done for the military? What do you, you, you Well, I can then turn around and say, well, I've, run, I've written about 40 pieces on American soldiers who went to, who fought in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, and World War One, and who died. And then I've written stories about their life. So I'm not anti-military. So it, it does bother me. That, that somehow the discussion point, the hit point becomes, if you take a knee during the national anthem, you are anti-military. So, so I continue to write these pieces to show that no, you, you can, you can support one cause and one issue by being, while also being respectful to the other. Let me ask you one more thing about the story. You wrote, you wrote about, um, his death, obviously. Uh, they're flying, uh, trying to reach Italy, flying across the Adriatic Sea. They have to bail out of the plane. The, uh, one of the guys, he could see Stanley Tevin's parachute. He wrote, he said the, the winds are so strong. They couldn't have lasted for five minutes in that frigid water. It was the most useless feeling of my life, knowing they weren't going to make it. None of them. How do you get people to open up, uh, when they're talking about what is almost certainly the worst moment or the worst experience of their life? Well, I, I would answer with a certain amount of naivete. Now, I, I have on, on a few occasions gotten in touch with people who just didn't want to talk. And I respectfully step down and, and move on to something else. Um, in this particular case, I, I, I think that these guys, I think it's, and, and who am I to say this? This sounds so haughty, but I think it is therapeutic because it, it isn't just it isn't just running in a battlefield with a rifle. This is a case where uh, there were 10 crew members of a B-24. The, the the plane was old rickety. It was the last weeks of World War II. The thing had probably been shot up a million times. And it leaked fuel. It ran out of fuel, and they had to bail out. So you got 10 American boys, and they were boys. They were ranging in age from like 18 or 19. I think the oldest was McEwen who was the uh, captain, the pilot, and he was 25. He was in Providence, Rhode Island. And so you've got 10 kids. They bail out of this plane in the Adriatic Sea. 
near the Isle of Vis. And two of them, by happenstance, land on a little reef. The other eight land off in the water in the distance. And Jerome Feldman, who, who kept a diary, and I saw, I held the diary. He, he was a, he was an exhaustive writer. He wrote everything down. And you, you, you're looking at the diary and reading the words of, of a, of a guy who's seeing eight crew members floating off to sea. I, I'm guessing there was a time where maybe he didn't want to talk about it. And then I think as he aged and he realized, you know, the scope of what had happened and here, uh, and now you have to know that, that I found John Mulvey Hill in the phone book. He was an easy find. It was in, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, uh, Feldman, he had, he never saw Feldman after that. Uh, in fact, my story brought Feldman and Mulvey Hill back together again. They contacted each other. And, uh, I couldn't find Jerome Feldman for the simple reason that he, he was born and raised in Brooklyn. And come on now, there are like a gazillion Jerome yeah. Feldmans in the tri-state area. <laughs> and, uh, so I finally found him by writing to the, uh, veteran affairs department and they couldn't, for reasons of privacy, couldn't give out his information. I sent the letter to them. They forwarded it to him. He got the letter I had written via, uh, DC. And then he called me up and he said, are you Steve Buckley? I'm Jerome Feldman. So now I've, I'm communicating with two of the guys who are on the plane, which is really something. Wait, tell and me that moment. Tell me that moment when you get that call. Isn't just pure euphoria. Oh, it was, it's exactly what it was. Because if, uh, I, I remember, uh, the veteran affairs people telling me he was an active claimant, which means he was alive and receiving benefits. So can you imagine writing this piece and filing it and sending it in, but not having Jerome Feldman in the story, knowing yeah. he's alive and not having his input? It wouldn't have been half as good a story if I don't have Jerry. So when, when, when Jerry calls me, that yeah, I do get really excited about that. And Mulvey Hill, just a few months after the piece came out, he got into his car one day and drove all the way to Cambridge. And, you know, he communicated with me first, uh, stayed in a local hotel. And then the next day went to, I took him to the monument and he just stood there and I took a picture of him standing in front of the monument. Now you have to understand Mulvey Hill and Stan Teven were friends. They were crewmates. They used to go drinking together. They, they went to, as I said in the piece, they went to an Italian cat house one night. Uh, yeah. hilarity ensued and. Feldman was not part of that crew. A guy named Ivan Billet, who I did meet later on, uh, literally as he was dying of cancer in Arizona. But Ivan Billet was the navigator and he was sick and he, he couldn't, he wasn't, he was having breathing problems. So they took him off that mission and they took a guy from another crew who wasn't flying. That was Feldman. Right. And they put Feldman on their crew. He didn't know those nine guys. Not those guys all hung out together as crewmates will. Feldman was from a different crew. So that's why Mulvey Hill and Feldman fell out of contact after this. They were both sent to, I don't, Feldman wasn't hurt. He just went back to duty and then came home. Mulvey Hill broke both his legs badly because uh, of how he landed. And yeah. he ended up in a military hospital in Plattsburgh, New York, and then was sent back home to Jersey. Final question on this story, which I could talk about for seven years. Um, what would you have done if you'd researched this piece and Stanley Teven was just a complete asshole? 
somebody asked me that once and uh uh the question is would it have become a hey geographic is that the right word yeah um would, would would i have cooked the books a little bit to make him nicer than he was and i honestly don't know fortunately i didn't have to answer that question because by all accounts he was a uh, a good kid and uh the, there were no the the one thing i did find and i don't think it's in the piece the magazine piece but it, it is in the documentary is that i did manage to get all his report cards from high school and 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 again this is just further evidence of how hooked i was on this whole story yeah. that i couldn't let it go and that he had decent grades he was okay he was a good student but that his grade in religion plummeted during a certain semester uh, uh, or marking quarter where it went from, I think it was numerical grading. And I think he got like 85 or 90, but then it dropped down to like a 60 or a 65 for a marking period. And, and I, I remember using that in the documentary and, and like I, we hired a narrator and and when I wrote the script, I had the narrator ask, we'll never know what dark thoughts were going through Stan Tevin's <laughs> mind. Because how does your grade in religion plump? Did, did he piss off the nun? I mean, right. did, was he impure? I don't know. I mean, it, and it, it's, I had, I had a little fun with that. And then his yeah. grade went back up. I, I prefer to think he pissed off a nun and, and suffer the consequences. So we'll That's never really know. Funny. You know what's funny about this story? Well, two things. Number one, um, it's actually, in it, in a way, Stanley Teven isn't who he is. It's the story, but it's not really the story. The story is really about sort of this journey. And because he's only a 20 year old kid, he was an undeveloped human being. So you can't actually, I don't think you can write this amazing, whatever, 6,000 word story just about him. It's really about the journey. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, and I, I freely admit I butted in on his story. It should have been. Uh, in a, in a feral world, it should have been a story about him, but I, I allowed myself to, to jump in with both feet and I made myself part of the story because I couldn't let it go. How many stories a year can you obsess over like this? Or how often can you obsess over a story <laughs> in this way? Um, I mean, when I was writing the column in the Herald, I was writing four or five columns a week. So, uh, sanity provid prohibits me from from obsessing to that nature uh th there have been a few i mean there there was a guy and I'll, I'll say it in 10 seconds there was a guy named lolly gatto uh right here in somerville where i live and i i don't even know how he's turned on in his story but he was a pretty good local baseball player he had a big game they gave him the game ball and and he was and then he was going off to fight for his country in world war ii he gave the baseball to his mother and said, hold on to this baseball until I come back. And of course, he goes off to Europe and gets killed. And the mother kept the baseball in her nightstand the rest of her life. And then when she died, it went to her daughter, uh, Lolly's sister, who kept it on her nightstand. And someone included me into that. I wrote a big piece on that. And I, I, I got the whole Stan Teven thing over Lolly Gatto. Now, there, there is a kind of a funny and yet sad ending to that story in that they had dedicated a gym to Lolly Gatto and uh, th they were going to rededicate the gym uh, here in Somerville and they had a big plaque and they were going to re-put the plaque back up after redoing the, the gym. Well, the Gatto family all went to the dedication and they thought it would be cool to bring the baseball and they left the baseball in the car with the windows open 
Oh, and when they came back, the baseball was gone. Some kids came by, saw a baseball. And it is sad that they kept this baseball for 50 years and now it's gone. But it's kind of funny and it's, it's kind of humorous to consider that a bunch of um, kids in Somerville were off somewhere playing baseball with that baseball. And I choose to believe Lolly Gatto would have found that humorous. So that's the way I ended that. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife and kids. So, uh, family members, I got some really sad news. Did the guinea pig die? No. Is Family Feud canceled? No, it's still on. The other day, a guy on Twitter, Gatto of Levi's, posted, Have you ever listened to the ads on Perlman's podcast? Is it okay that they make me cringe every time I hear them? And I just want you guys to know he's a moron. I mean, Dad, he's sort of right. Casey, you don't. Dad, the ads suck. Why don't you just keep it simple and tell everybody that 503 Sports is the best place around to order throwback sports merchandise. And they have a website, www.503-sports.com. You can also tell people you do these ads in exchange for gear, not money. Just because we believe in the company. I want to talk to you real quick about uh, 2011, Boston Herald. I mean, definitely, for me, the most memorable column you've written in a lot of ways, where uh, the lead or, or part of what you wrote is, I put this off long away. I haven't been fair to my family, my friends, or my coworkers. I certainly haven't been fair to myself. For too many years, I've been on the sidelines of Boston's gay community, but not in the game, figuratively and literally, as I feel I would have had a pretty good career in the gay Beantown Softball League. That's a good line. <laughs> Over the past couple of months, I've discussed the coming out process with my family and a few friends. And I've had sit-downs with uh, the Herald Editor, blah, blah, blah. They've been great as my friends. And you wrote this column, Coming Out, 2011, which I feel like seven years ago, I mean, it's still a gutsy thing to do. I feel like seven years ago in Boston, it's a really gutsy thing to do. Why'd you do it? Am I overstating your gutsiness on this one? Yeah. Um, well, I think maybe at the time I was a little caught up in it, but now it's, it's actually going on eight years ago in January. Oh yeah, and it, it's 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 so far in the past now. I don't mean to like push it off as insignificant. Certainly, it was very significant when I wrote it. But one of the things I've learned, uh, uh, Sid Ziegler from Outsports.com, who's become a really good friend of mine, I remember him pointing out to me that there are different. There's different terminology. There's openly gay, and then there's publicly out. And I was always sort of openly gay. I was in a relationship in the in the in for like five or six years in the nineties. And the guy that I was seeing, he went to the Super Bowl with me. I think pretty much everybody knew I was gay. Uh, but I wasn't publicly out. I was doing a ton of radio in those days. I was doing the Herald column. I was on TV and I just chose not to be publicly out partly because I was worried about the fallout. My mother didn't want me to do it. She knew, you know, she obviously knew I was gay. And, um, and then one day she said to me, I think you should just do this. And I said, okay. And that was in 03, but she was pretty sick. And before I could even act on it, she died. And once she died, when a family member very close to you dies, there's, there's lots of stuff to be done, you know, the estate and papers and, and so forth. So it just got put off. And like within two months, the Patriots were winning the Super Bowl. And then <laughs> we're into, we're into 2004. The Red Sox won their first World Series in 86 years. And I wrote a book and, and things happened. And, uh, and that's why I say I was unfair to myself. I had allowed the job to, to be more important than my life. So, uh, I, I just did it and everybody was cool about it. There were a lot of the athletes I cover, uh, reached out to me. I remember getting 
text messages from Kevin Euclid and, and Dustin Pedroia and Terry Francona and uh, I remember Bobby Orr calling me, which was which was really because he was like the ultimate athlete in Boston sports when I was a kid. And uh, and 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 I joke about this all the time. I found out that everybody's got a lesbian sister because uh, <laughs> I, I, I it's like every single person who came up to me. Well, hey, congratulations. I read the column. Good for you. And then there was that kind of leaning into me. He says, by the way, just so you know, I get a lesbian sister. Or, 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 or I've got a gay brother. Or my uncle Fred's gay. Or my cousin Alice. And, and so forth. So everybody had to tell me their, their, their connection with the gay community, which, uh, which I thought was kind of cute. It was, it was a way of, uh, bridging the gap. I, I wrote a piece for, ESPN the magazine about six months after I came out and I wrote the piece to bristle at the notion that me or anybody who comes out would be the quote unquote Jackie Robinson of fill in the blank. Right. And I, I, I took a little umbrage at that simply because when Jackie Robinson joins the Brooklyn Dodgers in April, 1947, he walks into a room filled with people who are very suspicious they of him they they even even the ones who are ultimately supportive of him still don't have any real black friends in their background no black relatives that they care to admit to and and Jackie Robinson had to wait for them to come around and what i wrote in the espn magazine piece was that when when you're the gay guy who walks into that big league clubhouse i still believe that rednecks aside most of the players because i've found out that everyone's got a lesbian sister all these players they, they, they've, they've all had gay people in their lives, either family, teammate, roommate, kid they went to high school with. Even David Ortiz, I wrote a great piece on David Ortiz. Uh, we had had this talk and he tells me about this kid growing up in the Dominican that David Ortiz told me so we all know he was gay. And, and, and this kid got in a little trouble, you know, being bullied and so forth. And David Ortiz was very close to his mother. And Ortiz told me that his mother told him that that God made him different for a different way. So you need to, you need for a different reason. So you need to respect who he is. And, and Ortiz remained friendly with this kid until he ran off and played baseball. And Ortiz wanted to tell me that story that day. And, uh, so that's why I don't like the Jackie Robinson thing, because I do believe that, that there are athletes in the locker rooms and clubhouses who would be okay with it simply because they've already made the accommodation in their own lives through people that they know. How did you um when you were when you were like writing about sports and whatever the seventies and eighties and I mean because I've certainly heard it from athletes over over the years and actually colleagues I would say you know faggot or queer blah 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 used in different ways like um do you just I don't know do you just digest it does it piss you off do you not it, it did not piss me off and maybe I wasn't a good foot soldier for the gay community at that point maybe I should have raised the fist in fury. I don't know. Um, I, I, I did hear it now and then, but it was always, first of all, I always felt I was on their turf. I was collecting information. I am, yeah. I am, uh, 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 not good to be around on deadline. I like to get my stuff and get out and get up and start writing. So the, the, the notion that outside interference would, would, would bother me. Uh, and, and again, I freely admit maybe I wasn't a good, maybe, Maybe I could have done some good if I'd said something. But again, at that time, I felt that was on their turf and I just got my stuff. And I, I remember one player 
uh, talking to the traveling secretary in the Red Sox clubhouse, and I was just I was talking to the traveling secretary and this player who shall remain nameless. They were talk. They used, they they make family trips during the season where the Sox, all teams, they go on a certain road trip, and that's the road trip where you can bring your wives and kids on the plane. It's a family trip. It's a, something that they do. And this player asked the traveling secretary, which which trip is, uh, are we doing that? And he says, oh, it's the Chicago Detroit trip. And then he said, oh, I thought it was going to be the this city trip. He says, no, it's not that. And he said, well, good. I didn't want to go to that city anyway. It's a fag town. And I, it, it, the guy was kind of a dummy. So I, I let it go. There was also a case where, um, in the Patriots press box after I came out, um, Elton John is pretty good friends with Robbie Kraft, the owner of the Patriots. And, and he was either at a Patriots game or Kraft referenced him in, in remarks during some pregame thing. And there was a, a writer in the press box making gay jokes about Elton John. And they, and they were really juvenile junior high jokes, you know, right. Fudge Packer and all that stuff. And I sat there and I heard all this and I, I turned and I looked at the guy about 20, 25 feet to my left. And I said to myself, nah, this guy's a dummy. He's not worth it. Uh, it, it, it would create a big stir. Maybe it, we, it would lead to a discussion and, and punitive measures, and then we'd all gain a valuable life lesson. And I said to myself, no, no, if I'm going to get in a big fight over something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick a better target, uh, a better adversary, if that's the right word for it, or, or someone who I could have a decent discussion about this. But a 50-year-old guy talking like a 14-year-old didn't interest me. So I just yeah. let it go. Plus, Elton John is one of the great entertainers of all time, and he does not need your defense. Well, it's funny because, cause, <laughs> because Ro- well, Robert Kraft, uh, uh, when I came out, and, and Robert was really sweet to me when I came out. Uh, uh, when I was, the, the first event I covered after coming out was a Patriots practice. And when I walked into the locker room, one of the PR guys, uh, Aaron Salkin, said to me, oh, I'm glad you're here. I was supposed to tell Mr. Kraft when you were here. So I'm in the locker room, and uh, we're only supposed to be there from 11 to 11.45. And it's 11.15, it's 11.20, it's 11.25, it's 11.30. Well, we're getting closer and closer to the time when they're supposed to clear out the locker room. And and the security guy is coming in. The PR people is trying to shoot people away. All of a sudden, Robert walks in, like 30 seconds before they close in the locker room. And he comes up to me and shakes my hand. I'm so happy for you and good for you. And in the meantime, coaches are walking into the room with big loose-leaf binders. And <laughs> players are coming. They're clearly about to have a meeting and, and do prep for Sunday's game. And I said to Robert, and I said, Robert, I, I thank you very much. I appreciate it, but I can't be in here anymore. And Robert misunderstood what I was saying, and, and he put a hand out. He said, who said you can't be in here anymore? If anyone says you can't be in here anymore, I want to know who that. And I said, no, 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 no. The locker room's closed now. They're going to have a meeting. I can't be in here anymore today. That's awesome. And he went, oh, oh, okay. All right, well, that's different, you know, like that. And uh, and then he offered to introduce me to Elton John, which I thought was really kind oh, of Oh, man, you got to take that one. <laughs> I, he, he's Every time, I've, I've even asked him, I said, conflict of interest be damned. I would love to be in one of his little soirees where Elton John performs before, you know, 200 of Robin's closest friends. And if yeah, that's totally. a conflict of interest, I'll pay the price because I'd love to see that. You know, Elton John, let, I, I feel like Elton John let me down a little bit when he performed at Rush Limbaugh's wedding. But I'll forgive him. 
Oh, well, he's, you know, hired gun, I guess. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to hear that too, but, you know, smoke him if you got him, I guess. Well, listen, Steve, I, uh, again, to, to come full circle, I, I appreciate you doing this, but I really, uh, you, you had a profound impact on my career, truly. So, um, for me, this is a thrill. And I, you know, again, like, thanks for doing this and thanks for writing a young, asshole letter at the university of delaware in 1993 well, well jeff i i suspect you were going to turn out just fine with without my assistance but i i will take the <laughs> assist and uh and, and and add it to my stats and i thank you for your uh i by, for keeping the memory of stan Stephen alive i appreciate that i want to thank today's guest steve buckley for joining me on two riders slinging yang you can follow steve on twitter at buck in boston and read his work on The Athletic. Also, a reminder, I'll post of Monuments and Men at jeffperlman.com and tweet it out as well. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. My still newish book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. It makes the world's greatest Kwanzaa present. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the insane-o-matic MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.